0: It's Angelina Pratt, your host for Empathetic Witness. Today I have a friend that I am interviewing, and I'm going to have her introduce herself and the title that she holds now. All right. So, good day, everybody. My name
1: is Cynthia Wesley Eskima. It's W E S hyphen, excuse me, W E S L E Y hyphen E S Q U I M A U X. I am the chair for Truth and Reconciliation at Lakehead University, and I'm also the chair for the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation in Winnipeg at the University of Manitoba.
0: Thank you. Yes, um, you have you hold such prestigious um, <laughs> positions throughout the time I have known you. And uh, I wanted to ask you a question about your name, because... I was told um, by, I guess, my husband, that you used to be a big canoe. Well, well, my family is a big, big canoe. Yeah, my family
1: are big canoes.
0: Yes, yeah, my father,
1: yeah. yeah so my father was, uh, well, my grandfather was Charles Lorenzo Big Canoe, and my father was Charles Lorenzo Big Canoe. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> much to his chagrin, he's like. <laughs> Don't give me the same exact name as you. But anyway, he has that. So, yeah, my father is a big canoe. And, uh, and I'm a member and resident of the Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation, which is where the big canoe family lives. Yes. But I have never actually carried that name. My name, uh, Wesley, is actually from Ronald Wesley, who was my stepfather and was from Laxul or Cat Lake yes. uh, in Treaty 3. Uh, Treaty. I, know, I guess he was in Treaty 3, yeah. And then my mother, Eskimo. Comes from uh, Manitoulin Island, from um, Sucker Creek, or what is now called Am- Amnicon. it has got—it's got a fancy name now. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, know, I know it means it means the crow that sits on the fence, but yeah. yeah. Be, but beyond that, yeah. So that's why I have a, a lot of uh, different names, and of course I've been married. So Johnson was one t- at one point, and and
0: Copty is my my husband's name now. Wow. Okay. Well, they've got a lot of history behind you <laughs> as For well. Sure. So thank you for that. Um, what I've been doing a number of interviews on residential school and reconciliation, and what I'd like to do is look at, you know, your experience as affected by residential school. If you didn't attend residential school, but what made you who you are today? So what what happened in the past? that at some point in your life, you said, I want better for myself, I want to create something for myself, and live a more powerful, empowering life for myself and others. So there might have been something early on in your life.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, geez, I mean, going all the way back, you know, I mean, even just being born to a unwed mother, In 1956 was Mm. enough of a challenge because uh, at that time it was you know obviously very frowned upon so you know my mother went back to manitoulin when she found she was pregnant she was only 21 years old and she didn't give me up but she did have some significant challenges Mm. uh, trying to raise me so i was boarded out a lot when i was probably until i was six until she got married so I think even that creates some, you know, creates a need for some resiliency. Like you're going from house to house to house, you're living with people you don't know. Uh, You know, those are challenging experiences for any child. And then when she did get married, uh, you know, she married another residential school survivor. So of course that combination of people created a lot of uh, domestic violence. And there was, you know, there was addictions in the household. There was a stepfather became an alcoholic and, you know, she did more of a, was more of a binge drinker, but I, but that said to me, I don't want to live like that. There was a lot going on in my household. I mean, a lot of young people, in uh, you know, at the time in, in my age group, you know, that are past sixty had similar kinds of experiences if they were the direct you know the direct intergenerational kid of somebody that had attended residential school. There was a lot going on, and of course, in those days, nobody was talking about it. They didn't really have an understanding that they had been psychologically damaged by the experiences that they'd had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it affected their ability to create relationships and it created the ability, affected the ability to be, to be calm and peaceful. You know, their, their mental state was obviously damaged by that. So there was a lot going on. Right. And they, mm-hmm. you know, so I think those are the kinds of things that said to me as a kid, I don't know what the hell's going on here, but mm-hmm. I sure don't want that in my life. And, you know, I won't have children, and I won't get married. I won't, you know, I won't do those things. But it wasn't like I was saying to myself as a child, "Oh, I think I'll go get an education." I dropped right. out of school at sixteen, like yeah. a lot of young people did in my age group, because, you know, especially Indigenous kids, because there was a lot of stereotyping and a lot of student violence when I was yeah. going to school. People just did not like Indians, you know, which yeah. we were then, right? Mm-hmm. They, you know, you know, you, you, we got a lot of. Um, it was just a lot of taunting you know squad you know darky and you know like all kinds of stuff so I, I dropped out of school so education even though I have a PhD today was not something that I was aspiring to I was aspiring to survival yeah <laughs> so leaving home at 16 years of age meant that I had to go directly to work and I did I got a job one of my aunts was a um, I worked in an insurance company and she got me in as a file clerk which you know but I hit the glass ceiling obviously right away but eventually you know well there's a long story like I went to school and then I, I left I mean I went to work and I left and went to California for five years well you know that changed everything because there that's when I went back to school.
0: Mm. Wow thank you yeah that's yeah you you hit on a number of points um, you know especially you know when you're raised in a household I guess for better terminology, dysfunctional, right? Um, with the drinking, maybe some violence. You know, you as a child, you don't really comprehend what's really going on, but you do know that there's something more than what what you're seeing in the present exactly. household. Exactly. So you you strive for that. You you know you want to get and I and I think you know your your story of being you know, going from, you know, household to household to find somebody to care for you mm-hmm. is really a deep, like, we have a deep need for being cared for, right? And to and be protection. cherished, to be protected. Yeah. And yeah. we have that need. And that carries through right into adulthood and how we, you know, how we feel about um, relationships, you know, right. and how we behave in relationships. So I think that's really an important part. I mean, I think a number of listeners listening to the podcast will relate to that, you know, in indigenous communities where maybe they were born into a household with a young mother, um, young family, uh, blended families, that type of thing. And to see and hear somebody Um, Like yourself, who has reached uh, an area in your life where, you know, you were a professor at a university, you hold a prestigious position in looking at identifying what's next for First Nations in terms of reconciliation in light of the dark history of residential schools. And yeah, so you can talk a little bit about that in terms of like, what does reconciliation mean?
1: Well, you know what? I think it means some very different things to, to different sides of the, of the conversation. You know, to the non-Indigenous population who has been tasked with the calls to action and the 10 principles from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think they're taking it very seriously, uh, you, know, you know, you know, whether it's the courts or whether it's child welfare, you know, education. <clears throat> I mean, everybody has their task. It's not all about the government fixing this. There are roles, obviously, for the government to take on and there are roles for business to take on, you know, the, the whole question of immigration. Like there's lots of things going on. And I think based on the conversations that I have the privilege really of being engaged in across the country, uh, there's a lot going on on that side. But I think more importantly for Indigenous peoples, they have basically had enough of a, uh, how could we, a launch pad, like enough of a push, whatever you want to call it, and again through this last you know number of years' supports to actually do the work themselves. They're doing a reconciliation process that's very separate and very different from this larger Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know, activity. Mm-hmm. I find that the communities themselves are are really strongly doing the <clears throat> the language reclamation. Yes. That you know, I see the rates of language speakers, especially in the younger population, including my granddaughter, who's not even two yet. Uh, you know, can count in in Ojibwe and, and is learning different you know words, and she's learning French and she's learning English. But she's learned but her mother's making a point of teaching her, and mm-hmm. I see a lot of young people that are that are in that place. There's also a cultural resurgence that is very strong. Yes. People, not, not the beads and feathers and the fringes mm. that we wore when we were kids, because yep. we wanted people to know we were Indigenous, even if it were, even if it cost us in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> but we wanted to know, we, we wanted to do that. And today, people still wear, you know, the jewelry and you know, the beads, and you know, but not quite the same, right? But that's not even it. The ceremonial uh, parts of our culture are coming back very strongly. Mm. And yes, we still have issues. There's no question that -hmm. we still have addictions issues, that there's still adverse childhood experiences. There's still sexual dysfunction that is intergenerational, and we're having a hard time beating it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're seeing, I think, uh, an upcoming generation that is now like three or four out of residential schools. Yes. Who have said, we're going to do this you know, we're going to move this mountain. Yep. And we're going to do it on our own terms. And we are going to be Indigenous. Like we are going to be in your face Indigenous. Right. And I yep. think that's, so that reconcil- that's a separate reconciliation process that is happening in the arts and, you know, everywhere that I, that I, you know, have occasion to look. So I think we should be really proud of that and really excited by that. And we should be as as we move into sort of the knowledge keeper, elder, you know, place, we need to be really cognizant of that and supportive of it. Like, we just need to be out there, you know, sharing our networks mm-hmm. and our own personal strengths and experience and mentoring the hell out of everybody that we possibly can. Yes. Help them get to where they need to go.
0: Yeah. No, that's really a powerful statement. I, because I mean, I just, just this morning, I saw a, a little post on Instagram where a I don't know which actor it was that went to the Cannes Festival and he was wearing a tuxedo and moccasins. Right. Yeah. And then he was asked to leave because he was wearing moccasins. Yeah. But he but he got back
1: in and they basically said, please come to the big Fashion and wear your moccasins. And, you know, anybody else that wants to do so, you know, I mean, and so that that really signals, I think, a shift. Yes. Uh, Not and again, not necessarily in the non-indigenous population because they were the one. You know that their security guard said you cannot come in here. Yeah, um, so I had to go to this larger place. But the fact that that young man said I'm going to wear a tuxedo and I'm going to wear traditional footwear, like again, yes. you know, I want to. Yeah, that would never have happened 20 years ago. Yes, and now in law school, you hold up. You can hold up an eagle feather. Yes. <laughs> kids with their you know with their hats and they're all they're all beaded with you know with their tribal insignias on it. I mean it's like, yeah, I'm gonna be in your face indigenous. So we you know I think we should be very celebratory about that. We, we shouldn't forget that we still have work to do when it comes to the adverse childhood experiences, uh, that the poverty issues and the child welfare, mm-hmm. you know, the kids aging out and, and aging out into poverty, aging out into jail, aging out into a, a non-educational experience, we still have an obligation because the rates of incarceration are exponentially rising. So in 2000 to 2020, it hasn't gone level. It's gone straight up. And of course, a significant proportion of those incarceration um, peoples are women. Mm -hmm. And part of that is tied to child welfare. Right. right? Right. Because child welfare, you take a woman's children away from her. You know, okay. she is going to react very, very badly. So yeah. there's all kinds of things like that that we obviously need to be, care- you know, thoughtful and caring about as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. And it is, I mean, I I think, you know, when you say, you know, we're pushing, we're Indigenous in, in the public's face, it really is not to be, um, well, it's not to be bold, but to continue the conversation. I think it's to have the conversation that we're still around, we're resilient and we're holding on to who we are as indigenous peoples. It's also just I think <clears throat>
1: I've always considered it as uh as adaptability that we are, you know, you know strong strong ad- uh, adapters to whatever circumstances are thrown at us or put in our way. I still remember one of my graduate students wanting to write a paper about homelessness, indigenous homelessness. And of course he went right to the, you know, the fact that people are poor, that there's no housing, whatever. And I said, did it ever occur to you to write a paper about indigenous peoples in urban centers that are, that are actually there because they're following the game. You know, they're mm-hmm. coming into the city to do, you know, they're hunting and gathering and to exploit resources. And when they, when they've done some of that, they can go back. They, some of them go back home. Yeah. Yeah. They come in for school, they come in for jobs, and then they go back into the north. Yes, some of them are struggling with addictions. This is true, and I would never deny that reality. But the fact of the matter is sometimes people are mobile because it's the way they are, and it's part of their culture to move space to space to find the resources they need to to survive. So we can't always look at absolutely everything as a negative. I mean, a good example of that is the question of how indigenous people see wealth right you know this idea that you know you, you know that like a Elon Musk you can't sleep unless you have several thousand billions of dollars <laughs> yes. you know and so you can go to the moon but <laughs> people, don't look at wealth like that like you know a wealthy man is a man who has his language who mm-hmm. has access to his culture who has access to ceremony who has a who has a wife who loves him who has children you know that love him and that you know that that are respectful and they are good people that's a wealthy man yes he may not have millions of dollars or even hundreds of dollars, but he has been able to put a roof over his head and his family, and raise uh, you know and raise a good family. So that's an important consideration as well because as we start as we really terrorize the planet with our overpopulation and with our inability to recognize that trees are living as well, you know that we you know like we we're doing so many things fundamentally wrong that I think the indigenous population has said over and over again, repeatedly since contact, slow down. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to exploit everything immediately. So, you know, really within the last hundred years, 150 years, we have just exponentially been destructive about everything. So I think it's worth, um, I think it's worth consideration that we look at that. I still remember a scientist saying for every hundred pounds, No, for every pound of human flesh on the planet, there's a million pounds of human stuff. Yes, and that's That's just—that's a lot alarming. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) it's so alarming. So that's you know, so that's you know, those are the kinds of things that I I believe that we, uh, you know, that indigenous peoples have, you know, somehow Mm. managed to to maintain, you know, that 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 understanding. That we, can, you know, we have responsibility, and yeah. even though things like the Indian Act took away a question of discipline and an ability to make decisions on our own because of the way the law was structured, we have still managed to create an understanding that we're all connected, everything is connected, and that we have an obligation and a responsibility to protect the planet and 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 the resources that we need to live.
0: Yes. Yeah, for sure. That's, um, you know, when you're looking at, um, you know, the planet, (laughs) I mean, I I like the way you said, you know, these billionaires, their next thing is not caring for the planet, but how do I get off the planet? Uh Yeah, create a new (laughs) new space I can mess up. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it's such a different way of thinking. I mean, so, so true. And because, I mean, I, I've been looking at, um, I mean, I come from an area of the um, oil sands. Right. right? So a lot of my family have earned their living working in the oil sands. And and then I also have family members that are activists against the oil sands. Right. So it's a little bit of uh, uh, the paradigm is how do you reconcile living and earning a living and a lifestyle, you know, contributing to the destruction of the earth and protecting the earth,
1: right? You know, I think it has a lot to do, you know out there. You know, I have been to the tar sands. I have been through you know to Suncor's uh, facilities as well. A bunch of young uh, young people out there. I think that if there was actually a dialogue that was respected between the people that are, you know, that are in charge of the tar sands and the indigenous population, you would see a very different kind of a circumstance because right now it's just rip and tear. Mm. And, and, and I remember being out there and, and it's all flat. You know, they've taken down every tree and they've taken down everything. Yeah. And they had trees and they were upside down. So the roots were up in the air. Yes. And, and I remember saying to the bus driver, um, are those trees upside down? And he's like, yeah. So I was like, okay. <laughs> So when I got to the sun car, I said, I noticed that so your trees are upside down. And the guy said to me, well, yes, that's so the birds will nest on them. And I said, well, I'm from Ontario, and our trees are roots side down, and our birds do okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no. And he looked at me like I was stupid. And he said, no, it's because we want the birds of prey, like the big birds, to nest on them, uh, because they keep the rodent population down. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I get that. I said, but mm-hmm. that's not reclamation of land. Right. Like, that is not... When you, you know, when you put up your ad saying, you know, we do all of this reconstitution, reclamation of lands, that's a lie. Because putting trees in upside down that are essentially dead. Yes. Your birds will nest on to keep the rodent population is not living. So, you you know, but, but if the Indigenous population was able to work together with them, they would be reclaiming land properly. Yes, well, it wouldn't be destroying it, you know, so 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 quickly and so broadly that you can see it from space. Mm. Doing that, you know, but how do you, you know, you cannot recreate, you know, thousand million years of forest forest growing. You cannot recreate that, at least not in our lifetime. So clearly, there has to be a a a way to do this and to protect the waters. um, There's so little respect for water in the developmental world when. You, we all need water to survive. Yeah. And so very little of it is actually potable and, and accessible because most of it is atmospheric. You know, a lot in, you know, a lot of it is underground. Like you just can't go and get a cup of water somewhere without actually the, all of the things that we do to get water in our taps. Yes. Some people don't have. Yes. But I just find it extraordinary that people would rather have billions of dollars in the bank than actually ensure that if they have children – Grandchildren that will have a future.
0: Yeah, I get that point. Absolutely. Because I know um, in my family, um, you know, there is a group of family members currently that are, right as we speak, making a journey to our traditional lands in northern Saskatchewan. For the first time in the 70s, my dad took you know, some of my young, younger brothers and sisters to the land or my older ones, I mean, (laughs) my older brothers and sisters. And, um, and last summer, they went again, because one of my older brothers passed away, and his final wish was to have his ashes spread on the land. So they went there and they, and it was a reintroduction back into the land, ignited something in them, to right. say you know we need to go back to the land we need to to you know get the source of power from the land for you know for our health for our spirituality for our mental health you know right. and so they're right now on their way to the traditional lands and and it's important to for young people to to see that i think it's important like for them to just see how, I mean, and you know, of course you can't, you can't go a hundred percent back to the land. I mean, those, that era is past. You can't make a living going back to the land, but you can go for ceremony. You can go to reignite.
1: Yeah. But I think, I think, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're uh, I guess I would say we're half right there. I think that, you know, I have said this too. I, I mean, I know young people and older people that have lived very close to the land, you know, and we go to their, their spaces for ceremony to, you know, sit around fire and, and, and share stories and do all those things, you know, and, and I think that's very powerful, but you're, Correct that not a lot of young people have access, especially yeah. because we have so many kids now that are raised in urban environments. I mean, two thirds of our population probably now live off reserve, right? And you know, whether it's rural or urban or whatever, if they don't live on reserve because there's no real economy on reserves. Yes, but at the same time, when we say we can't earn a living going back to the land, I'm what you know. I think that um, there is something to be said for getting more of our young people into things like forestry and, and different biological um, um, jobs where they can, you know, fish, you know, look after fish and they can look after, you know, birds and they can look at, so that we actually can't, you know, they can farm. Yes. Great greenhouses, you know, they can, um, you know, uh, you know, the university, uh, Vancouver Island has um, a, a, a whole project that does on land farming and they, they, they raise sturgeon, mm. you know, so, you know, and they, you know, little wee wee sturgeons all the way to probably a good 16, 20 inches before they're released, right. When they're healthy enough. And out of that sturgeon work, they, uh, they have hydroponics mm. and grow their own lettuce and all of their own vegetables and fruits for their tables or their mm. So if we actually were able to interest our children in doing those kinds of things, we could make money on the land and protect it at the same time. Yes. So, you know, it's just a question. So as we move forward, so, cause a lot, our, I mean, a lot of our young people are going into banking and going into industry. Hmm. Yeah. Because those are the jobs that, that are open to them right now, because there's a lot of people in a lot of high places. That really desperately want to hire Indigenous people, so that they can say, "Yes, we, you know, we have an Indigenous, yep. whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever." Yeah, you know, So you know, we, like we, this is a great time to be Indigenous if you're looking for a job, yeah. Because there's a very few of us in 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 and in, you know, in the context of Canada, that have the kind of qualifications and training and, and backgrounds that are you know that they can hire that they can hire, right? Yeah. It's, it's a small mark. You know, we're a small group. A people. And I mean, even when I did a doctorate, I, I don't think there were 10 across Canada. Now we've got to have at least 50 or 60. I don't even know how many now. Yep. So I don't think anybody's really done the count. But, you know, we work in, you know, in institutions like universities, uh, which is fine because it's a training and it's an opportunity to teach people about yep. Indigenous history. But what we, we do really need to be turning our, t- our attention to young people and, and trying to get them on the land, Yes. And doing the kinds of things that will actually turn around you know what's happening because it's happening very quickly yes and we are seeing some very very destructive um things happening and we're going to have environmental refugees and we're going to have all these shifts and changes in a country like this because it's a pretty small population and very large landmass. Mm-hmm. so i think um you know, we should talk more about that you know how do we We've, our kids are coming back to ceremony, they're coming back to culture, they're coming back to language. Yeah. Then how do we get them to go a little bit further and, and and you know come back to the land?
0: Yes. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean that that is something that you know I've been thinking about. I have a number of well, I, I just spoke to one of my nieces that works in uh, um, you know in resources in North, in Fort McMurray area. And I was saying to her, you know, we need to start a project to get, you know, like some kind of activity for youth to be part of, you know, even planting trees. Yeah, exactly. In their their area, you know, so help out with um, planting trees because every tree you plant will give you oxygen. Exactly. It also helps the soil. So it's really... Something that is doable and it's uh, it doesn't cost too much to buy a sapling and plant it, you know. So looking forward, you know, getting more conversations around how can we. I guess we're, we're looking at how can we nurse Mother Nature back to life, right? Because she's quite ill right now,
1: which which I would I might add if we all disappeared, she'd be just fine. Oh, definitely. Yes. We're the ones that will be extinct, right? And we didn't keep doing things like, you know, and I remember Lee Miracle talking about that. Lee Miracle saying, you know, that they, the earth is feminine, you know, we call it mother earth.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and so, and then, we, and we have a lot of domestic violence uh, and violence against women across the planet.
0: Mm-hmm. And he
1: said, you know, that's, there's a direct correlation between the ripping and tearing of the mother of the mother and the ripping and tearing of the women across across the planet. So, mm. you know, we have to be far more aware of what this is costing us. We need to be rewilding. Yes. Rewilding um, our communities <clears throat> that have become you know very sort of urbanized. If you live in any reserve anywhere, <laughs> yeah by gel the housing and everything's you know done for convenience sake, right? Yes. And not the way people lived a long time ago when they lived in tents and those kinds of you know portable housing. They didn't live, you know, next door to each other. They gave each other some space. Yes. And then when they wanted housing, you know, when they built their own housing, they did the same thing. Log cabins were not cheek by cheek, cheek by jowl down the road. They were placed in places that it made sense to be in. Yes. And people kind of privacy that they needed. So there's a lot of things about that. But rewilding, you know, if we have to be where we are, fine. But we can rewild our reserves. You go to a lot of reserves and because of the poverty in many places, there's, you know, the trees are sort of all cut back and pushed back. And there's nothing around the houses right, that are providing, you know, the ability to preserve water yes. and to create shade and, and even to create some beauty. Yeah. You know, putting in flowering bushes, flowers. My mother put in flowers when she moved to Birch Island and, and, um, and everybody said to Ben, her husband, oh, I see you're living white. <laughs> oh my and God. she's like what She's she said well because the flowers but she said it only took about five years and everybody started putting in flowers right somebody has to make the initial move right whether it was about education and somebody going and getting a university degree and people say well she can really do it I can do it you know putting in flowers making it you know and understanding the beauty yes important beauty is to our souls right our our spirits so you know, there's a lot that we we could talk about in a in a very positive light. I think that really helps our young people. And I, I remember being in a community in a re, very remote community, very remote place, and they're saying, "Well, you know, we all have to hide on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights because all the drunks come out, and you know, we have to. All the kids are looking for a safe space, isn't there? And I said to them, "So what happens on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday?" And they said, "Well, nothing. It's quiet." And then I said, "Well, those are the days." Mm. You should be talking to the people that are drinking on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Yes, yeah, and saying to them, you know, are you understanding what you're doing to your children? You know, this first mm. childhood experiences. And I said, and, and on and on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, you have a, a center of your of your village. You should be putting up a fire and roasting marshmallows or whatever, having yes. games for the children. Oh, they won't come. And I said, do it anyway. Mm. But eventually they will, and the children will come, and eventually the parents will come because they'll see there's something better to do than sitting around getting drunk and fighting. Yes, but you have to provide the impetus, the reason, yeah, for them to to break away from you know the, these old habits, which are creating multiple generational impacts yes. in your community. But it takes champions, right? It takes people yeah. who are willing to be invitational. So, you know, you know, so you know, for me, it would be, you know, at my house, everybody, you know, the doors open in the morning and it doesn't close until I go to bed. And every you know, stop by for tea, come over for dinner, come on, sit on the deck, let's have a chat. You know, like I I want people to come and yes, you can take a book, you know, like just opening up our our, our homes and our hearts again to each other. Yes. So that we create and support. Because i had kids say to me, if I have a fight with my dad, <clears throat> if I got no other place to go, I'll go get drunk. Mm. But if I had another place to go, so you know, like those neighborhood watch signs that yes. used to be up. Yeah. Why don't we, Why don't we have flags or little signs in our windows on our reserve? Yes. That it's a safe house. You know, we could go through the vetting process and the police checks and all that's fine because obviously we want our kids to be safe. Yep. But, you know, we could put a thing up in our window saying, I'm available. So if yeah. you have a fight with your mom or your dad or whatever's going on, you have a space to come to. And one kid said, and you don't even have to feed us. And I'm like, well, thank thought he was like 6'4". <laughs> yeah. You know, But you know that's fine, right? But there, when we think about reconciliation and this conversation that we're having, it's way more than, you know, us getting along with non-Indigenous peoples. And non-Indigenous peoples getting along with us and having respect for us. It yes. really, really means retrieving and growing our humanity. Yes, and our, our our willingness and our ability to be loving, to follow those seven teachings. You know, have the courage to say yes or no depending on the circumstance. To have respect for ourselves, right, and each other. To be yes. humble, no matter how you know, good looking you are, how educated you are, how much money you have, you know, you're, you're just like everybody else. You're going to, you were born and you're going to die at some time. Get over yourself. Right. You know, be truthful. Like there's more, and plus there's more truth than your truth. There's lots of truths in the world that need to be, you know, taken into consideration. Be honest. Let's be honest with each other. There are things that we have to do. If we can master those five, they can take us through to, to, to love. Yes. So we really understand what that means, and if we can master those and love, then we get to wisdom. Yes, right. So we don't get to wisdom until we actually master the rest of them. I think. I mean, yeah. I know that you often put in all kinds of different orders, but I put them in that order because I believe that we, you know, if we don't have the courage to step out, speak up, stand up for ourselves, and, and put a hand up to somebody, yeah, they we're not ever going to be get to the place of wisdom because we'll never have lived. A life that 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 is of service, right? You don't get to wisdom until you learn how to be of service in a good way. Yes. Good
0: yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. When you mentioned the the uh, having a safe place for people to go, I don't know if you know the late Harold Johnson. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I read his books. Yeah. Know, yeah. I and yes. I've had many conversations with yeah. him. Uh, about sobriety on reserves. And one of his campaigns he had was similar to what you just mentioned. Uh, you know how they had uh, neighborhood watch signs, right? He talked to some communities about putting up, I guess he called it sober house signs. Yeah,
1: so same you, thing, yeah. yeah,
0: same thing. You put it on your house and you let people know in the community that this is a sober house. They want to come by for tea. Drop in, yeah. have a conversation. This yeah. house is sober uh, and it's free. I mean, it's open yeah. to them, right? Yeah, exactly. And
1: that's that's the thing to do.
0: Yeah, and so he that he was really vocal about that because he says people would go away, you know, to uh, rehab and get sober, but when mm-hmm. they came back, there was nowhere to go because their yeah. friends no longer wanted to have yeah. them around because they were drinking, right? Yeah. So he thought of the idea of creating these sober houses for people to then visit and have uh, a community. The other thing he said though, too, which I thought was very
1: valuable and I have repeated before is he also said, it's not good enough to only approach the people who are drinking to try to get them to stop drinking. He said, you need everybody in the community involved. So you need to talk to the people who are drinking and the people who are not drinking and bring people together because that's the only way. I mean, I guess it's the same thing when it comes to reconciliation, non-Indigenous and Indigenous. Yep. You need to bring them together. And I tell people all the time, unless you can get up close and personal and yep. break bread, have a yep. meal together, yep. share a story, have some laughter, you know, uh, you know, play, we yep. are never going to have the kind of respect for each other that is necessary because you will always see each other as other yes and 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 somehow dangerous or somehow different but everybody eats you yeah. know and everybody wants to have a good laugh and mm. everybody wants to tell a good story or hear a good story yeah. so i think and, you know and he was right and i tell people that you know you it's not good enough to, to chase down the people you feel are 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 the addicts in your community you need to chase down the people who are not and find out why they're not and what they do and create the kinds of activities in the community that everybody can participate in and show people who who don't know what to do on a Saturday night, that there are other alternatives.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that really um, brings us to a really nice conclusion. I I see that we're pretty close to the hour. Um, um, What, what I'd like to end the interview with is, and you've touched on it throughout the interview, you know some of the positive moving forward steps that we can all do today to make our lives better, the lives of the people we live with, and and largely the lives of indigenous peoples. Like what can we do in action today to make it make a better place for indigenous people?
1: You know, I always tell people, I'm not looking for any grand gestures. I think what's really important here is that each individual choose for themselves the very thing that they know they can do. So if they go to church, they can talk to the people in their congregant. They can talk to other people in their church community. Mm. If they're a teacher, they can bring in more materials that actually teach their children in a good way age appropriately about residential schools and the, and the experience that came out of that. If they're a parent, you know, they can ensure that their children hear from them good words about other kinds of people, other cultures. Yes. You know, that if you, They hear bad things at the table, they take it out in the street and make it real. Yeah. If they're, if they're executives in, in organizations, they can schedule uh, a talk with an elder or a knowledge keeper or, a, you know, an academic and say, would you come in and do, I'm, in fact, I'm going to be doing that on Thursday with the, uh, with the uh, Simcoe school board. I'm going to speak to the principals and, and upper level administrators in the morning. And in the evening, they've scheduled another similar talk for the parents and, and teachers and other students and people like that. So you can do those kinds of things. You can get, Yourself out into the indigenous community by attending a friendship center. You can go to a powwow. You can pick up some books. I mean, I have a very extensive book list that I often send out to people who request it. You can uh, watch some amazing videos. You can go and watch a mooc. Uh, Jean Paul um has done one. I'm working on one actually for Lakehead, or it's almost it's really completed. We're just trying to figure out how to get it up. Um, you can go to lots of places to get. Sanyas has one in D.C. Um, you know, I've done stuff with the hospitals in Ontario. So there's no, there's no excuse. You yep. don't say, well, I didn't know what to got. And you've got the internet for gosh sakes. that tells you everything. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's really no excuse. But I think really one of the things that people can do is not worry about being allies, but mm. actually choose to be friends. Mm. So, you know, they take a very different tactic Because I have talked to many people across the country, including Carolyn Bennett, who was, you know, for a long time, the minister responsible for reconciliation and right relations, um, who said to me, you know, this country robbed me. For at least the first 60 years of my life, I knew nothing about Indigenous peoples. i had never met an Indigenous person. I had had no education about it. And since I've been very actively engaged with the Indigenous community, I've gone to ceremonies, I've gone to communities, I've gone to families, I've, I've stayed in their homes, they've come to my home, and it's mm-hmm. changed my life. Yes. It's changed my life for the better. And I'm and I, i you know, I, I'm also a faculty at the BAM Center in uh, in Alberta and have been for many years, and I meet people there all the time who say the same thing. I come to the Wise Practices uh, session, I come to the Truth and Reconciliation Right Relations, you know, that we spend a week you know, working together. They say, like, it's changed my life. I, I see the world in a very different way. Let me just share a last story with you. Uh, we just did a Truth and Reconciliation Right Relations um, <clears throat> session, six days in Banff um, at the beginning of May. And there was a doctor that attended, and a non Indigenous doctor, white doctor. Um, he was challenged all week because we had probably a very good half and half mixture of Indigenous peoples and non Indigenous peoples. And he was challenged all week by some of the conversations and some of the places we went, we went out on the land. Uh, we went to a place where they actually very clearly uh, favor non-Indigenous peoples, uh, even though it is an Indigenous uh, ancient site. Mm. It was discovered by white people and therefore, you know, they now own it. Yeah. Uh, so it, you know, and, he, and he was really challenged by that when Indigenous people were um, upset by that. And anyway, in the end, uh, at the end of the last day. Um, everybody is uh, asked to do a, a commitment, you know, to stand up and say, you know, uh, after this week I commit to mm. you know, go back to my office to do better, you know, whatever. Right? Um, he couldn't speak; he was so overcome with emotion, mm. and he he was really struggling. And the the most beautiful thing happened: the indigenous people in the room stood up mm. to honor him. Yeah. And then the non-indigenous people stood up, and everybody stood up while he struggled through this emotional. Yes. place and I thought it was so beautiful that they did that yeah and then, you know when he sat, and then he went to 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 talk to the elder um in the circle just to, to she was going to give him <laughs> some sweetgrass and he really lost it you know and she was so kind mm. she was so kind to him and, and I know that he felt better I'm sure you know after that he thought oh my god I can't believe I lost my Yes, yeah yeah, yeah yeah but it was so amazing to see mm-hmm him so respected that's reconciliation yes that he could be so vulnerable yeah and the indigenous population in the room could be so respectful yes and not you know look at him like oh look at him no they actually stood up and stood with him so people want to know what is reconciliation yeah that's what it is yeah not being afraid to shed a tear to be vulnerable in each other's spaces, to break
0: bread together, to cry, laugh, uh, and learn about mm. each other. Yes. Oh, my God. That that perfectly illustrated, you know, your story, perfectly illustrated reconciliation. Like, yep. perfectly. Like, I think that, and I could see it happening, because I know, well, I, we're Indigenous, we know we're empathetic, right? Yep. You know, hence the name of this with yeah. podcasts, you know, yeah. and with our empathy, you know, and we witness other people it's struggling. We we're with them and it's called community. Right. So, yep, you're absolutely right. So yeah,
1: that is that is that is the perfect story for you know what the work that you're doing. And I want to thank you for that. It's very important work that you're doing and I and I hope it gets lots of uh time and attention from people because they really need to understand by the stories that we tell and the experiences that we've had and the forgiveness that we absolutely understand.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you know, I you know when I decided to make the podcast and talk about some of these stories, I made a conscious decision not to talk about the trauma because as you talk about the trauma, you revisit the trauma, you create more trauma for the person telling the story right. and the person listening to the yeah. story. Um, you know, that's the, the podcast is really about pulling and showing our resilience and our, our uh, empowerment mm-hmm. and to have other people see that so that they know we, as a people are empowered. And to that point, the image on the podcast was designed by my brother who's an indigenous artist. Oh, yes. The music for the podcast is my cousin who is an indigenous musician. Oh. And and the editing is done by my granddaughter who is just super with technology. Very <laughs> so, cool. You know and and that's my way of playing it forward to and getting people close family involved and part of this podcast in little ways.
1: Lovely. Well, that's great, and, and yeah, and thanks so much for the opportunity to have a conversation. I'm sure we'll run into each other now that we can actually go outside again. Yes, I'm yeah. The, the monkey pox thing. Now I'm like, geez, you know, what's what's coming next? Yeah,
0: I know, I know. Well, I I really enjoyed this conversation, Cynthia, <laughs> and um, I think your words and your just the way you're saying them will will you know hit with people. And it resonates with them. And, uh, you know, I would ask you to share the podcast once it's edited and up um, with your students, with other people. And just let's just keep it growing and going.
1: I will. will. Okay, that's great. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. Take care. All
0: right. You too. Bye bye.